This program is brought to you by the partners of A Root Awakening International. Help others find truth. Support A Root Awakening International today. God knows how to party. In fact, he gave instructions on how to do it. He also gave us instructions on how to butcher meat, how to serve it, how to cook it, and even when to throw out the leftovers. Steve Seifkin explains the deliciously practical instructions in the Torah about food regulations overseen by authorities in the temple system. Because it's the end of the sixth day, the sun has set, and this is Shabbat Night Live. Well, Shabbat Shalom Torah fans, welcome to Shabbat Night Live with Michael Rood. You know, we don't stop to think about it, but with continual sacrifices going on in the temple, it would probably smell like a high-end steak restaurant because that's exactly what was going on. We forget that the most practical purpose of the sacrifices was food for the people. And Steve Seifkin gets us to take a second look to discover just how practical and safety conscious the food laws of the Torah really were. And it's the perfect time for a summertime party because it's the fourth and final Shabbat of the fourth month on the astronomically and agriculturally corrected biblical Hebrew calendar. There, you see it right there. And that means it's summer vacation time, but we need to remember something, which is why we have CEO of Rude Awakening here today, Ted Clayton. Well, thank you, Scott. And ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Shabbat Night Live. We kind of switched things around a little bit. <laughs> Wasn't that fun? Yeah, I, I did the open for the first time uh, today, folks. So I think uh, you did all right. Yeah, we should do that again sometime. Well, thank you, Scott. <laughs> Well, what's going on today? Well, we need to talk about summer giving. We touched yes. on this a little bit last week, and mm -hmm. it's just, you know, people go on vacation, they forget to, to yeah. support ministries, That's and, you know, true. a lot has changed in the world, too. You know, we're, we're all, you know, hopefully we're bringing stuff uh, to Shabbat Night Live that people want to see about, you know, what is coming in the world, how do we need to prepare, yeah. this type of stuff. And in the midst of all this garbage going on yeah. in the world, People have lost jobs, but in the meantime, other people have you know, gained more in their businesses. And so yes. we really need to appreciate where we're at with the businesses we have and, and where we're working and stuff. And if God has blessed us, yeah. we really need to you know, help support the ministries that are you know, helping to bring out this information. And we just right. would like to humbly ask for folks' support in summer because it kind Absolutely. of slows down. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, it is the most important time of the year for your giving. Uh, really, there's, well, actually, there's two times, Scott. The summertime is very important and also the end of the year, but more than any time, the summer. Mm. You know, we have so much going on right now, ladies and gentlemen. There's wars. There's rumors of wars, uh, just as the Bible said. There's uh, famines going on. There's floods happening. We have hurricanes uh, in, the, in the oceans. And... We just need to remember God's house, as it were, in this time of year. We have so much stuff going on with uh, vacations and with different activities that we need to, to do. But ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to ask and uh, for Michael 
that you prayerfully consider giving at this time of year to A Rude Awakening International. You know, Michael and the whole Rude crew, we do so much to try to spread the gospel to the four corners of the earth, or as Michael has said to me in the, in, in the past, uh, you know, as the waters cover the sea, we should cover the earth with the gospel of Yeshua Messiah. And so right now, ladies and gentlemen, we're asking that you stop for just a moment and prayerfully consider giving to a rude awakening. Maybe even a sacrificial giving above what one would normally do. Because we're at the precipice, ladies and gentlemen, of something great. You know, with all the things that are happening in the world right now, it's only God's vision and God's word that can truly take us out of this doldrum that we're in, take us out of this, this time of war and time of, of, of real sacrifice. And I realize there are people out there that are really sacrificing right now. There are people out there that are hungry. There are people out there that are hungry for the word of God. And we're trying to do that here at A Rude Awakening. We're trying to, you know, uh, we don't buy airplanes. We don't uh, build wells out in third world countries, even though that's a great thing to do. And don't get me wrong, it is. But what our goal is here at A Rude Awakening is to spread the gospel of the kingdom to everywhere. And ladies and gentlemen, we can only do that with your help. So right now, Right now, would you please stop for just a moment and pray with us as we ask that you prayerfully consider giving to a rude awakening. Scott, would you pray for us Certainly. right now? Yep, why don't you join us? Yehovah, thank you for the folks watching this program. We thank you, Father, for, for everyone who uh, just loves to see the gospel go forward and there's new programs coming from this, yes. uh, this ministry and there's yes. new people coming to this ministry every yes. day, Father. We need to keep going on that because mm -hmm. right now the world just needs more of you and less of everything else. There's yes. so many distractions, so much nonsense, yes. so many lies going out there, Father. Hallelujah. The truth needs to go out more and we are doing our best to bring out your truth, Father, and so we yes. just pray that you would uh, just impress on the hearts of those who can give to this ministry that they would mm -hmm. and, Father, that we just... Uh, continue to do what you do uh, to the best of our ability. We thank you for those who make it possible. In Yeshua's name, amen. I mean, amen. You know, one of the things fo folks don't realize is that, you know, in the most unlikely places, like for example, TikTok. Yeah. You know, a few months ago, mm -hmm. you know, we didn't think TikTok was really a rude awakening's thing. Right. But then somebody came along and said, hey, I've been doing TikTok videos for, for a rude awakening, a guy named Dan. Dan. said, mm -hmm. why, don't, why don't we give it a shot? Why not? Yeah. So we, <laughs> we started doing more of that and there's like millions of views on TikTok. Absolutely. Of Michael's stuff. And we thought, TikTok? Yeah. Really? Uh, over 60,000 supporters right now. And it's fabulous. And yeah. we could not do things like TikTok, YouTube, uh, Instagram, uh, Facebook. It's all those things that we try to do. It's our new, it's our new television, as it were, uh, that we're doing to spread the gospel. And you just won't believe the reach of social media. Mm -hmm. The reach of social media is now worldwide. And that's why we've concentrated so hard on social media right now because people in China, people in India, people in South America, they're all seeing Michael's materials through social media. Yep, in ways that we would have never, never thought dreamed, of before. Never dreamed of. And, and, and meanwhile, some of the other places like Facebook, you know, they do, you know, they shut us down here and there Sometimes. and make it frustrating yeah. for us. Yeah. But 
on the flip side, other places like TikTok open up and we have a new avenue. And so, YouTube, just yeah. like where you're watching right now. It's it's just incredible. Exactly. All right, well, thank you, Ted. And so <laughs> there, you. there are some good reasons why we just need to keep going here and why uh, we really appreciate those who can give through the summer months. That's right. All right, Steve Seekin explains the deliciously practical instructions in the Torah about food regulations overseen by authorities in the temple system. But before we get to the barbecue instructions, we're going to do the blessing over the wine and the bread with Michael. The Kiddush is coming up next. Stay with us. Communion was not something new that our Messiah invented, nor is communion the Passover. So what is it? The disciples asked the Messiah, where shall we go to prepare the Passover? The Passover. He's talking about the preparation day. So that's where communion is. That's what the Lord's Supper is, is the preparation day. Steve Stiefkin presents, Where Does Communion Come From? A step-by-step -step examination of ancient cultures, scripture references, and extra-biblical text that will give you a refreshing perspective on what communion is and what it's not. Where Does Communion Come From is our gift to thank you for supporting A Rude Awakening International. When you donate $50 to this ministry in July, we'll send you Where Does Communion Come From with Steve Siefkin on DVD or Blu-ray. Donate $100 and we'll send you Where Does Communion Come From? Plus a matching tote bag and stainless steel water bottle set bearing the name of Yeshua in both English and Hebrew. Donate $300 and we'll send you the teaching, the tote bag and stainless steel water bottle set, plus a tabletop sculpture of a sailboat engraved with a scripture verse from Proverbs chapter three. These gifts are a limited time offer from Michael Rood to thank you for your support. Make your donation today and receive the $50 gift, the $100 gift, or the $300 gift. Get these exclusive thank you gifts when you make a donation to support A Rude Awakening International only in July. Call 888-766-3610 or get your gifts online with a donation at monthlylovegift.com. The Chronological Gospels Bible is changing lives all over the world putting everything the Messiah did in exact chronological order and explaining the behind-the-scenes truth of what the Messiah did, when He did it, and why. The timing of it all means everything. And now, the Chronological Gospels can be easier on your eyes. The larger print edition features 40% larger type, and every page appears exactly the same as the original so you can follow along with others who have the regular size version. The Chronological Gospels Larger Print Edition also has wider margins to write notes, and the premium quality paper means you can highlight without soaking through. Plus, the Larger Print Edition lies flat, so you can teach without having to hold the book open. The Chronological Gospels Larger Print Edition is a big and beautiful coffee table book measuring a full 12 inches tall and 9 inches wide. Study the Bible with clarity and ease. I love the size of this book. This is 9 by 12. The paper is, is perfect because it doesn't bleed through when I write on it. I can mark it up, and I always make notes in all my Bibles. 
everything is the same place as it is on the smaller version, and I can just stand back and I can teach from it, and it's just, it's the perfect size. I pray thee, of whom speaks this prophet? Order the Chronological Gospels larger print edition by phone or online. You'll get 40% larger type than the original. Call 800-788-7887. That's 800-788-7887. Or get the Chronological Gospels Bible larger print edition online at arudawakening.tv slash large. Several years ago, I was in the land of Israel and having Sabbath dinner with a group of Messianic Jews. They brought out the Negelvesser, the two-handled pot, and they said this prayer in Hebrew, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctified us by your commandments, commanding us concerning the washing of hands. I stopped, I said, this is exactly what Yeshua did not do. He said, this is takanot. This is a commandment that is added by the Pharisees and Yeshua said, do not follow the takanot and maasim of the Pharisees. Don't do what they do, say you're doing it for me. Yeshua said, as often as you do this, this is what you do. You take the bread, and especially on Shabbat, we do this in remembrance of him. Barukata Yehovah Elohino Melaka Alam. Homotzi lechem min haaretz. This is how Yeshua blessed the Most High with the very blessing that Melchizedek spoke to Abraham and Abraham. Abraham saw Yeshua's day and he rejoiced because he recognized the broken body, and Yeshua said, this is my body, which is broken for you. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And then Yeshua took the cup, and he said, Baruch Atah Yehovah, Elohino Alam, Borei Pri Hagafen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine, and Yeshua said, this represents the renewed covenant in my blood. As often as you break this bread and you drink this cup and you say this prayer, you recognize that it is all about me. It is all about me and that you'll be drinking this cup with me in my Father's kingdom. Lahaim. Shabbat Shalom. Last week we talked all about the tabernacle and the temple being the center for a hospital situation. Now we wanna talk about how these two places can serve as food regulation with Steve Siefkin. Welcome back, Steve. Oh, it's great to be here. Again, this is my favorite topic, so I'm just thrilled. So when we say food regulation, are we talking about the, the temple and the tabernacle being like a, a food bank? Is, is that what it is? Or, the FDA, or what? they're the Food and Drug Administration. Ah, it's kind of okay. the CDC. They're the, it, it's, it's where what we got in America, how we attained what we do, it's where it comes from. Hmm. It, it comes from God's system. 
And uh, I think this is the part of the offerings we miss. And it seems very clear when I read the scriptures, but I wanted to share that to see if uh, others will see it this way also. Okay. So uh, what I've been saying is there's four purposes. It's a judicial system, which we haven't talked about yet. Last time we talked about the hospital. It's the Center for Disease Control, the Levites. Mm -hmm. They were the ones that saw the sick and pronounced you clean or unclean. They pronounced you sick or not sick and would let you go back into society. That's exactly what our CDC does. They'll regulate how mm -hmm. hospitals work and how the sick is dealt with. How are we doing? You know, that's the big question. Compare America to what God told Israel. Mm. That's what we want to learn from this. See where we're at. If, if we can get on, this, on Yehovah's page, we'd be doing much better. We'd be much happier as a nation. Today, I want to look at food regulation. That, contain, uh, that um, is about the peace offering and the grain offering. Ah, okay. And those are the two non-atonement offerings. They're the two voluntary offerings. The others were for atonement in kind of different ways, and two of them were compulsory. We haven't gone over those yet. But these are just voluntary peace offering and grain offering. Okay, so that's what I want to look at today. And um, I find it fascinating. It just gives a practical reason for these offerings. And I just think it's neat to see that God makes sense. It's very important to me that God makes sense. So food regulation, the peace offering is kind of a butcher statute. It's how you would butcher your meat. That's what the peace offerings for is to prepare meat to eat. Hebrews were not allowed to eat of their animals unless brought to the tabernacle. Huh? I mean, right. think about the implications of that. Whatsoever man there be of the house of Israel that kills an ox or lamb or goat in the camp or that kills it out of the camp and brings it not unto the door of the tabernacle. Hmm. hmm. Does that mean we can't eat meat today? People hmm. often say we can't do the sacrifices because we don't have a temple. But this would mean we need to be vegetarians too, because we can't kill anything out. But I can eat something someone else killed? Hmm. I mean, if we're really thinking that yeah. way, but I don't think that's what this stuff means. And we probably won't get this till a later episode, but they're required to offer meat so the Levites could have their portion. So they'd bring the peace offering, the Levites would get their portion, it's called a wave or a heave offering. Um, and that's their part. A wave and heave offering are part of the other offerings. Mm. It's the portion of the offering that went to the priest. So the whole offering didn't go to the priest. Only a part of it did. The rest of the offering, in the case of the peace offering, went to the offerer. The peace offering. The priest received the breast as a wave offering. The priest received the right shoulder as a heave offering. I just went over that. This ensured the proper killing of an animal. The fat was trimmed and the blood drained. The mm -hmm. Leviticus chapter 3 is the chapter on the peace offering. And look at the very last verse. It says, It shall be a perpetual statute for your generations throughout all your dwellings that you eat neither fat nor blood. Hmm. Does that not sound like food regulation? Yep, it does. It sounds exactly like it. He goes through this whole chapter to explain to you how to butcher an animal, how to make it ready to eat, and provide it to the public. You and I wouldn't do this unless we were like sheep herders or goat herders or we had some sort of business in that. Right. That's why we would do it. Or we would have one done for a special occasion. You know, they were done for parties, and we're actually going to get to that. Look what the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. All the evidence is there for this. The common altars were fitted for their use, as feasts had been thus celebrated from time immemorial. At the feast before God on the mount, peace offerings provided the food. Hmm. The peace offerings were for the food. That's why they did a peace offering. 
The whole purpose was to regulate the proper butchering and killing of an animal so that the people could eat it. Hmm. And we, we see it as a religious thing, and it's really not. And I kind of want to straighten that out so that it, you know, that God's temple system makes sense. It's uh, kind of important, I think. Even King David, he said, First um, Chronicles 16, 2 through 3, And when David had made an end of offerings, uh, an end of offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of Yehovah, and he dealt to every one of Israel, both man and woman, to every one a loaf of bread and a good piece of flesh mm. and some wine. So we've got here a meal offering, which we haven't talked about yet. That's the loaf of bread. A peace offering, which is the piece of flesh, and a drink offering. Mm. This is a celebration. Yeah. This is a thank offering. And Thanksgiving offering is what Leviticus calls it. Mm. And we don't recognize that. It's just, it's right there in front of us, and we see it all over the scripture, but we don't always recognize it. It can be for Thanksgiving. This is a Thanksgiving offering in Leviticus 7.12. If he offer it for Thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the sacrifice of Thanksgiving unleavened cakes mingled with oil, unleavened wafers anointed with oil, and cakes mingled with oil of fine flour and fried. Hmm. Sounds yummy. Yeah. Fried, <laughs> fried cakes. These are donuts. I, to me, it's like, wow, this sounds really good. It's a Thanksgiving offering. Look what the Thanksgiving meal is, all right? This could be for a party, a celebration, a wedding. Anytime you're throwing a party, you do a Thanksgiving offering because hmm. you're thankful. Your daughter's getting married. Who pays for it, right? Dad, yeah. we're going to throw a big feast and a party. You're going to have the fatted lamb killed. We assume, often you hear, oh, they were an agricultural society. Everybody knew how to do that. That's not true. The farmers hmm. knew how to do that. But the people in the walled cities were like, Regular folks in California or yep. you know, North Carolina or Texas or wherever, they didn't know how to butcher their animals. They took it to the butchers and they had them butchered. We're much more sophisticated today. For one, refrigerators changed the whole game, right? I mean, yep. we can just store the meat. Is that wrong? <laughs> I don't think it is. I think the spirit of the law completely allows for that. Normally mm. you get... The first or the second day, the third day, it's bad, and you throw it out. Right. That's what the Bible says. Yeah, it really is. It really yeah. is bad. <laughs> I know. It's God didn't lie to us. Huh. This is a celebratory meal. Must be eaten the first day because you were always trying to provide the best food in celebration. So God even said, eat it on the first day when you're doing a party. I mm. like that. That's a commandment. If we're throwing a good party, you should have good food. It shouldn't be leftovers. Right. It just makes sense to me. This is a multi-course meal. Now think about their society. They didn't have multi-course meals every day. They ate much simpler than we do. We're spoiled. We can have a multi-course meal almost every day. You yeah. can get a packaged multi-course meal, <laughs> throw it in the microwave and have <laughs> right? a package of it. They, they did not have that luxury. When they mm. ate meat, it was usually a rare occasion. They usually had bread. Mm. And maybe a side of bread, some, bread yeah. and fish or something. And, or. and they had what was available to them right there. To have a special meal like this was unique. When you did it, you did a Thanksgiving offering. That's part of the peace offering. Mm. It's just how they regulated food. You'd go to the to the butcher, to the Levite. They'd butcher it up, cut it up, prepare it. Mm. There's your party. So you do it on the first day. You take care of it right then and there. See, this is part of the problem we miss with, mm. it wasn't just the tabernacle. What about when you're at the far reaches of Israel? You gotta drive, drive. <laughs> you gotta drive, 
You gotta walk for a couple of weeks just to get the food. How are you gonna get it back? Hmm. It's not possible. This is a system spread throughout Israel. So let's tease that a second. So that means that you can do sacrifices outside of the temple? Yes, I believe so. And Ah. people push back on that a lot with me. (laughs) But uh, it's a tiered system to the temple. As long as the offerings go all the way up to the temple and pay their way to the priesthood, yeah, it's still part of the same temple. Ah, interesting. So it is. So it's a temple system. System, yes, it is. Not just a temple. The gates of the city is where this was done. And we're going to get to that in a future episode as long as we have time. Here's uh, Josephus. He said, the manner of offering sacrifices, this is that uh, it's from Antiquities of the Jews, but the other is a thank offering and is designed for feasting for those that sacrifice. So basically we need to re-evaluate the word offering then. Yes. It's almost like... it has many different meanings. It's really. an offering because part of it goes to the guy that butchered the meat. He needs right. to get paid somehow. Right. God's system deals in real property. Our problem today is we don't really deal in real property anymore. Part of their monetary system was wheat, corn, you know, all sorts of grains, sheep, goats, cows. Right. That was their monetary system. They had gold and silver also for convenience. But for the most part, they were like a bartering system. That was how Hmm. the ancient societies worked. So to them, this was just how you deal with money. We don't look at it that way because it's it's completely foreign to us because we just... We, we pretty much do money for everything. Yeah. And they did. They were a trading society, and that the temple traded and dealt with things this way. And Before long, we may be back to <laughs> we that. We might be. We <laughs> might be. Uh, the other t- type of a peace offering can be for a vow, and this is where mm. I probably should have done the burn <clears throat> offering first, but uh, I had a hard time figuring out which order to go in because <laughs> they relate to each other so often. So, but I'll just tell you what the burn offering is. But a vow is a promise. In contract law, a vow is a firm agreement. In contract law, if the parties exchange promises, each promise is consideration. Hmm. A vow is a promise, it's a contract. If you and I were gonna go into business somehow or exchange money for some sort of a, um, whatever, you know, buy a house or a car or whatever, we'd go do a vow offering, which is a peace offering. Hmm. Now think about what this is. Peace offering for a vow. When we make an agreement or a contract with someone, that's when we do this. This is a business meal. Talk to any businessman today. If you're gonna spend a lot of money with someone, you sit down and eat with them and get to know them first. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what God's saying. Hey, do a peace offering. That peace offering always came with a burnt offering. The burnt offering ratified the contract. We haven't gotten to that yet, but that's what it was for. It ratified the contract. The temples would actually write it out. You'd get a receipt. You'd get a paper for the contract, Mm. and they covered the contract. Then you'd have a meal, and you would seal the deal with the burnt offering. That's what was going on. This is just a business Mm. meal. Mm. That's the way I see it, at least. No, that's a real good way of seeing it, it, I think. It makes perfect sense. It fits everything. Now, on this one, you can eat it on the same day or on the second day. It's not a party. We're just getting to know each other as business partners and for whatever contract we're agreeing to. And uh, Hmm. we're having the temple cover our contract. We wouldn't do it for $20, $100. But selling a house, you want to have some paperwork on that. And you want to have your legal system, your government, 
I was just going to say, the same thing. it's not unlike going to an attorney for your, your mortgage papers yes. or whatever. It's right? the same thing. We yeah. ju- it just looks a little different. We're a lot more advanced. We just go dee, 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 and print it. Here's your paper. Right. They didn't do that. They had scribes. That's what is interesting when you study ancient temples in, in this area. Granted, we haven't been able to unearth the Jerusalem temple. They're, we just don't have a lot from it. But you study the temples around it. You know what you find? Title deeds, contracts, hmm. all that comes up from the ground when you study it. Because when, in fact, I, I just get fascinated. When we do the burnt offering, it's so interesting. Some of the quotes you find. But that's what they were doing. It was their ratification. They're notarizing hmm. the contract to make it legal. And so that the temple can back it if we have a problem with our deal. If I did something and I broke the deal, and I say, no, you can take me to the Levites, the Levitical priesthood, the Supreme Court, the right. judicial branch of this, and solve our contract, because they regulated it. And I suppose when you, t- when you do the, uh, the offering while you're there, there's your witness. There, right? There's the, your witness, exactly, yeah. and it, it's written down. Hmm. And uh, this is just the way it worked, and every temple did this. Hmm. It wasn't just the Jerusalem temple, every temple did. In fact, I learned most of this from studying the other temples, Hmm. because there just isn't a whole lot of history on the Jerusalem temple. It's just been so protected, that area, you just can't really get to it. I mean, you you see what's going on now. There's a whole, I don't know, it's just hard to find out. Very hard to excavate the area. Yeah, you can't excavate it. It's just protected land, basically. And, uh, but when you look at other temples, you get a hint, and then you read it in the Bible, you're like, that's what they're doing. Hmm. It's just like the other temples, but it's God's law. It's not some other man's law. That, right. You know, Where so, they had temple prostitutes and all yes, that Yes, exactly. They I mean, did their law differently. Yes. But, yeah. and, and some of it overlapped and worked the same. And to mm-hmm. be honest, the closer they were to God's law, the better off they were with the blessings and curses. Mm-hmm. So... Um, we see this in the New Testament. I really like this connection, but you can see some of the things I studied in the Old Test, um, in the other temples. But uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10 is talking about meat sacrificed to idols, right? He says, As concerning therefore the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is none other but God but one. So this is him starting off the conversation. He finishes it two chapters later in chapter 10, where he's talking about, you know, hey, don't it's no big deal to eat at meat offered in this idol. Um, Just don't stumble your brother if it bothers them. Refrain. That's what he's getting at. But there's some hints you can infer from this. Look what he said. When he sums it up, he said, whatsoever is sold in the shambles, that eat asking no question for conscience sake. Shambles is the butcher's stall or the meat market. Hmm. So in this this non-Israelite temple, the offerings went to the butcher's stall and they sold it to the people. Hmm. That's exactly what the Jerusalem temple did too. The offering, the, the peace offering, the offering part went to the priest for his payment. The rest of the meat, if I were a sheep herder, I'd have hundreds of sheep. I'd be sending them through to the meat market all the time so people in the city could come buy their meat. Right. They had two days to do it till it would go bad. And that's pretty much all they're doing. And we see hints of it even in the New Testament. This is the hmm. New Testament. That's Paul explaining it. That's what they were doing with the peace offering. It would go to the, and, and, and as that system tiered, hmm. they'd be doing this at the gates of the cities. The Levites would. This is not like a pay for your sins type of a thing that that our Messiah did. This is just food regulation. 
Hmm. I mean, you see the difference? It, yeah. There's no reason we can't say we can do this today. I don't know if we recognize that, where it's, you know, this, the gates of the city, it's almost like, oh, that's around the temple, so it must be the temple. Yeah. But, you know, that's why I always, <laughs> you know, you, don't, you just kind of glaze over that and don't pay much well, attention Well, the gates to it. of the city, they held trials there. The, mm -hmm. the elders of the city were there. I mean, it, it's right there in, in the scriptures for us. We just don't make the connection. What'd they do after the trial if they were found guilty? They owed a sin offering. Spend a few weeks going to Jerusalem? I, I guess that's how it worked. The <laughs> truth is Jerusalem, the, the temple, did not have the ability to handle that many people. Mm. Just like our Supreme Court. How many cases do they hear a year? But how many cases are heard throughout the entire nation? Right. There's no way that court can handle it. It's just not possible. And scholars say this all the time. They just, we just don't want to really connect it in the church. The, in Acts it says, but you abstain from pollutions of idols. Well, pollutions, that, that just makes sense. And this endorses the dietary laws today mm. because that's what a polluted thing from an idol is is when you're breaking one of the dietary uh, laws. Mm. Polluted and sacrificed. Pollutions means to soil, defilement, or pollution. Okay, that's what it means. So your food's soiled, defiled, or polluted. Well, what does that mean? It pretty much means you know strangled instead of slaughtered. The Bible says not to keep the blood inside. Right. Uh, Bible says you got to trim off the fat. You know, it also says to make sure it's clean animals. You know, we do that in America for the most part. We don't strangle our meat and leave, you know, it's the, you know, blood in the animals. We slit its throat, bleed it out, and we trim off most of the fat. Maybe we can get better at that. Um, we do slaughter unclean animals. Yep. But compared to most nations, we're really not bad. Yep. You know what I'm saying? We're one of the better nations on, uh, on the earth. Well, even trimming the fat from clean animals, I mean, uh, just speaking from a health perspective, that's where the toxins are kept, in the yes. fat. Same thing in our bodies and in the animal's body. So even if it's a clean animal, trimming off the fat is a health regulation that it belonged to God and you were to burn it up. Well, that's why. Yeah. He didn't want you eating that because that's where the, the nasties were. You mean God was right? Yeah, wow. how about that, huh? <laughs> that's just amazing. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it just makes perfect sense when you start yeah. to look at it this way. And uh, we, we do this. They would slaughter their animals, it mm -hmm. would go to the meat market. You know, We have butcher stalls and it goes to Albertsons and Stater Brothers and Kroger's, all of our meat markets and it's sold to the people. With refrigerators, you don't need to follow the two-day statute anymore. I think that spirit of the law completely allows that. You keep it frozen. I, I, we've got meat in our freezer because we raise goats. Sometimes mm -hmm. we'll have them butchered and stuff. From a year ago, it's perfectly good. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with eating it as long as it stayed frozen. For if the freezer goes bad, you better throw it out. Yep. You know, the minute it, 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 you're done with it. And that's pretty much what the Bible's saying. As long as we read, read through the cultural differences. All right, so hold on to that thought. We're gonna come back with more. And uh, thank you for being here. And thank you for bringing Steve here because it's your donations that made it possible. And donations now will help others see it into the future. So thank you in advance. We'll be back in just a couple minutes. Thank you for supporting Shabbat Night Live. We're learning all kinds of new stuff here today. And uh, Steve, we were just learning about how uh, clean animals and, and the, the sacrifice sacrifices and maybe some different things than what we thought normally. Now we're going to move into the uh, the grain offerings or the meal offerings, right? Yes, the, gr the grain offering matches the peace offering. Mm. The peace offering was food regulation for meat. 
The grain offering was food regulation for our crops, for our plants, basically. And they did the same thing. And it's amazing how this connects to America, because I just stumbled on to what I think is the answer, although it's a little speculative, but it's just amazing to me that we kind of do the same thing Hmm. today. And again, these are all voluntary offerings. Yes, these are not the offerings that are for atonement, which is what a lot of people would have a hang up with, but even that, I think I'm gonna answer some of the questions that most people have with them in the last episode we do. At least that's my goal. uh, Because I've studied the sacrificial system pretty thorough. And knowing it, when you read the New Testament, it reads differently. Hmm. All of a sudden you're like, oh, that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about all of the law, he's talking about this law. Hmm. He's not talking about all of the sacrifices, he's talking about this sacrifice. And when you start to know them really well, you start to just pick up on that and all of a sudden things read a little bit different. Nothing drastic, but it is a little bit different. So food regulation again, we're gonna talk about organic farming. That's the meal offering, that's the grain offering. It's an inspection process is what it is. The Hebrews were not allowed to eat of their crops until they made an offering. Right. Same reason the priests get their portion. So here you are a farmer, you had to go to the temple to offer it so the priests get their portion. Well, what did they do with it other than just eat it? Well, they were inspecting it. And I couldn't have any of it until they did this because it had to be clean first. It had to be approved first. And um, I'd like to share that, how I've come to this conclusion. Hebrews were uh, not allowed to eat of their fruit trees until the fourth year. So these are part of the regulations. You you couldn't do it until the fourth fourth year, so they couldn't do this offering until then. (coughs) Hebrews were not allowed to eat genetically modified plants. Figured you'd like this one, but I don't know if you saw this before, but Leviticus 19, 19 said, you shall keep my statutes. Thou shalt not let thy cattle gender with the diverse kinds. Thou shalt not sow thy field with mingled seed. Neither shall a garment mingled of linen and woolen come upon thee. Hmm. Well, the first part of this is two different animals coming together, mingling together. The last part of this is two different linens coming together, but the middle one we think is just sowing field the field. It's not the field, it's the seed that's mingled. That's the problem. Mm. This is genetically modified seed. We assume they didn't know how to do that, but they were grafting and mixing and doing all sorts of things even back then. So uh, this is, you, they're gonna test and make sure that it's not genetically modified. Well, and the reason too is the same reason, <laughs> uh, it's, strangely me. enough, that. It is for the woolen and linen, because wool and linen, when you wash them together, they're gonna to have different rates of uh, separating, right? So the wo- yes. they're gonna have different rates of stretching, so what does that do? That creates a weak garment. Well, the same thing happens with genetically modified, in today's science, when you, <laughs> we're supposed to be making things better with genetically modified canola, for example, that makes the plant weaker, as a matter of fact. It has mm. less nutrition, so it's the same thing. It's just making things weaker. Yes, and I, I think that's what the priests were doing, is. Verifying that all this is correct. Yeah. You know, we do that stuff in America for right. our food. Are we doing it right? That's that's the key. Uh, Hebrews were required to offer grain and fruit so the Levites could have their portion. That's the the reason they go is for that portion to be given to the Levites. That's how they're getting paid. Right. And but where did it go? Where did it go? This is what led to the kosher laws of today. Hmm. That word kosher. What does it mean? Food regulation. Kosher. Kasher. Kashrut. Those are the words. It means fit what is acceptable to be straight or right. You're koshering the food. You're making sure it's fit or acceptable. 
The Jews use this term even today. They even have a certificate for it mm. to determine what is acceptable food. Kashrut is a term used throughout the oral law, the Talmud, to describe the priest's duties to regulate food. So this, this was well known. The Jews even know this today. Why we don't connect it to the sacrificial system and these offerings, I don't know. But it just makes sense. Since the Hebrews were required to bring of the first of their crops, the Levites could inspect if the food were acceptable. That's why the priests had to put it in their hand. Mm. Now, the priests received the remainder of the offering for themselves. It cannot contain leaven or honey. That's important. Mm because I'm going to connect that to America in just a minute. Oh, okay. Pay attention. It's just amazing that we do the same thing. Shall season it with salt. So the meal offering is a food inspection process. Could not be eaten until the first fruits were offered. I know I'm reviewing some of this, but the priest would inspect a handful before they would burn it on the altar, and it could be used publicly. Cannot contain yeast or honey. Yeast alters the flour. If you bake bread, you know how it alters it. It makes it rise. Mm -hmm. It's just going to change the composition of the flour. And honey feeds the yeast. Hmm. This is America's wheat and flour testing methods, a guide to understanding wheat and flour quality, version two. Look at some of the quotes that are in this. Mm, now, it's a long document, yeah. but I just picked a few things to help us identify this. I'll just read bullet points right here. The grade determining factors are test weight, heat damage, total damaged kernels, foreign material, shrunken and broken kernels, to total defects, uh, wheat of other classes, contrasting classes, and so forth. So I find it interesting that they have heat damage in there. The next bullet point, damaged kernels is a grade determining factor and is composed of two categories, heat damage and total damage. The level of enzyme activity measured by the falling number test affects product quality. So there's a falling number test. So they're reading a number, they're testing it. They're probably way more sophisticated today than they were back then. I'll bet you it was a visual inspection back then. Yeah. But we actually have the ability to test it with numbers. Yeast in bread dough, for example, requires sugars to develop properly and therefore needs some level of enzyme activity in the dough. If the falling number is too high, enzymes can be added. But if the falling number is too low, you cannot remove the enzymes. Mm. So they would do it unleavened because you can't remove it out. Right. You can add it if it's needed to get to that number to test it, but you can't take it out. Hmm. I, I just find it amazing. What they that do at the amazing. end, the sample is mixed and washed with a 2% salt solution, hmm. just like the meal offering. Wow. It's mixed with salt. We use a very similar process in America to test the quality of our wheat. Now, I, I guarantee we're far more sophisticated today than they were. But I think they were doing the same thing, and they could probably just tell as they're burning it or whatever they're doing. They had pots and pans, and they boiled stuff, and they, they were probably way more sophisticated than we give them credit for. Because I think God, just like in the, um, the hospital part, the essential oils, he only gave them, they, they knew most of it. He only gave them part of the answer. They had the rest of the answer. See, we don't know the rest of the answer because we don't do it. And I think it's the same thing here. They told him, he told him what to do, just mm. in general, but they knew the rest of it. They filled in all the gaps that we have a hard time filling in because we don't live like they did. Right. But we do the same thing. We test our wheat and we make sure it's of good quality and we send it to 
the grocery stores. Do you think they got these, this idea from the Bible? What do you, what do you, what do you I don't think? know. I think probably originally, yes. Did America? Probably not. It's just what nations have been doing. Mm. God probably told us how to do it, and we just started doing it that way because it's probably the best way to do it. Mm. But what they would do, these offerings, the grains, where did they go? They went to the storehouses. Right. Mm-hmm. But what, we, we call them grocery stores today. They called them a storehouse. They had one big one, the temple, and then at the gates of the city, they had storehouses. Malachi kind of gives us that hint that the gates of the city had storehouses, and Philo does the same thing. Because mm. uh, the tithe of the tithe, when Malachi says the tithing, I, I think I might cover it a little later, but um, he wasn't talking about the tithing to the Levites, the people weren't breaking the tithe. He was talking to the priests. The priests weren't tithing of the tithe. So it was the gates of the city, the lower court system, not tithing to the upper court, the higher court. Mm. That's what, we totally mixed that one up. But if you read who he's talking to, he's talking to the priests not tithing. And we completely misconstrue that, I think. Mm. Okay, so I'm looking at your screen here. So we've covered the grain offerings. That was good. And uh, the peace offering. But uh, there's one more thing, and I wonder, we've got about 10 minutes left. I wonder if we can talk about the, the burnt offering, which yes. is the banking system. Is that, is that what that is? Yes, it, it's okay. a banking system. And I'll go quickly because there's a lot of information here. But the temple was a bank. Hmm. The tabernacle was a bank. It wasn't a bank like we do banking, though. It was really more kind of like a treasury or a depository, maybe more like a credit union is what we'd call it today. They had to have real stuff there. It wasn't, mm. you couldn't uh, loan on something uh, you didn't have. So no fractional reserve system. No fractional system back reserve. <laughs> so okay. I'm just going to read through some quotes that scholars say just to give us an idea. The Jerusalem temple constituted an economic entity in its own right. The economic weight of the temple was a tangible reality in the city-state. Its influence felt in every domain of political life. The temple with its treasures and treasuries was a national bank of sorts. Hmm. These are scholars. This is what you would download and peer-reviewed. Temples functioned as the banks of antiquity. And to extend the metaphor, the temple storehouses were the bank vaults. Oh, okay. We don't look at it that way. But the temples had storehouses that stored grain, food, gold and silver, you know, when they when they looted temples, they weren't just trying to get the decorative gold. There were vaults down below that they were trying to get the gold coins out of. Right. And that that's what happened in 70 AD. Josephus records it. There was gold there. Uh, it was a treasury. It was what they did. You know what I find so funny is that these days when everybody's preparing for the end times, right? And we're all prepping, right? Everybody's prepping. Everybody's getting gold and silver and storing extra food and this kind of thing. I kind of laughed to my wife the other day and I said, you know what's funny about that? That before, say, 200 years ago, every single society in history has done without electricity or running water. And here we are panicking that yeah. we may not it's have true. electricity and running Absolutely. water it's because true. we don't know what we're doing. If we would just follow the Bible and see what they're doing with the storehouses, yeah, it, it'd be a lot easier. It would work just fine. Yeah, the, the tabernacle and temple dealt with money. It was always after the shekels of the sanctuary. I put a few verses up there, but over and over again, after the shekel of the sanctuary, hmm. they minted money. They made money for the nation to use. Um, temples in the ancient Near East did the same thing. Some more scholarly quotes. Numbers of texts indicate the role of the Mesopotamian temple as depository for the community. 
some of it belonging to private citizens and deposited in the temple of Artemis. By the 5th century BCE, Greek temples had developed a thoughtfully organized deposit system. Hmm. These temples, along with the Jerusalem temple, were a depository system for people to store their money. If you want it safe, because if you live out on the ranch, any robber can come steal from you. Where if it's in the bank, it's guarded. If it's, it's safe at the temple. So they had one big institute that guarded it. Mm. Taking down the temple was not easy. It took another nation's army to do that. It wasn't going to happen by just a common thief. Mm. But your house, that may not be the case. So that it was their banking system. The temple in Jerusalem. Some of these quotes are pretty interesting. This is 1 Maccabees. And he told him that the treasury in Jerusalem was full of infinite sums of money so that the multitude of their riches, which did not pertain to the account of the sacrifices. Think about what that's saying. The multitude of the riches in the temple did not pertain to the account of the sacrifices. How did you put your money in the bank? You did a sacrifice. Mm. What sacrifice was that? Having goodwill to the king's affairs, I came to inform thee that the infinite that there is infinite private wealth is laid up in the treasuries of Jerusalem. This is 4th Maccabees. It was extremely unfair that those who had committed deposits to the sacred treasury should be deprived of them. So everyday commoners could deposit into the treasury and they would have a receipt and they could go get their money. And that, that's what our Messiah was dealing with, was the corruptness of that system when he threw over the tables and dealt with the money changers. Right. This system got corrupt. Which and was essentially foreign exchange. Yeah, at was. the airport, really. <laughs> that's that's what the Messiah was dealing with, with foreign exchange. But the, yeah. it, it was at the temple because they regulated their money and they were doing exchange of currency because it had to be after the shekel of the sanctuary. They further burnt their treasure chambers into its way vast sums of money. That's Josephus talking about the, the um, destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And this is Tobit. This is from the Apocrypha. This is where you find the receipts. And now I signify this to they that they that I committed ten talents to Gabael, the son of Gabrius, at rages in media. But how can I receive the money, seeing I know him not? Then he gave him the receipt and said unto him, See the uh, which go. Sorry, I missed that. Well, seek thee a man which may go. Yeah, the, the okay. bars in my way there, I couldn't see it. <laughs> seek thee a man which may go with thee. Uh, but you read at the end, and he gave him the receipt who bought forth bags which were sealed up. So mm. they had bags sealed up with a seal on it, approving a lot of money with the receipt that came with it. Mm. That comes from an offering that we just saw, that first quote I showed. The storehouse was the location where the temple commodities were held. That's what Malachi 3.10 is about. The temple issued loans to people. Some temple loans, some of the texts found in the Mesopotamian temple archives appear to concern business dealings between private individuals. Hmm. So you want to do a business together? We do a burnt offering. That's what we're getting to here. Um, their legal proceedings with each other are ended. Other texts document decisions concerning slaves, transfer of a dowry, theft of property, uh, summons to court, settlements of an estate, terms of loans, and business partnership agreements. These are all mm. writings found in temples. I want to get to how this, you know, some of their responsibilities, warranty deeds, loans, deposits, contracts. So how would uh, someone ratify or notify these contracts? It would be a burn offering. Hmm. The burn offering was a contract ratification. Noah did a burn offering when he made a covenant. 
Abraham did a burnt offering when he made a covenant. Moses did a burnt offering when he made a covenant. I think we're running out of time, so I'm trying to go fast. <laughs> I want to finish this. In fact, Abraham told us what the burnt offering is. Remember when he passed be- the lamp passed between the pieces? Mm-hmm. That's what a burnt offering was. You'd cut the pieces, you'd pass between them, and it'd ratify a contract. Um, in Jeremiah, he says the same thing. And I will give the men that have transgressed my covenant, which have not performed the words of the covenant, which they had made before me when they cut the calf in two and passed between the parts thereof. Mm. That's how you confirm a covenant. That's the burnt offering, walking through the parts. In Leviticus, they didn't describe that part. John Gill said, this was a custom used in making and confirming covenants. A calf or some other creature were cut in pieces and the parts laid in order. And the covenantees passed between these parts. So think about it. When the Bible says make a covenant, the word for make is karat, which means to cut a covenant. Covenant is berith. The only offering that was cut in pieces is the burnt offering. All the Mm. others, it doesn't say cut them in pieces. Burnt offering says cut it into his pieces. Ah. It doesn't say to walk between the parts, but the assumption is that's what they're going to do. Contracts today come from the burnt offering. We might say cut a covenant. You might say cut the offering. You might say cut a contract. You might say cut a deal. You might say cut your hand and do a blood handshake. Mm. I mean, then you do gross stuff like spit on it, it, but we won't go there. (laughs) But this all comes from the burnt offering. These all come from the burnt offering, which is why it is called the blood of the covenant. The burnt offering is what they sprinkled on the people at Mount Sinai. This is contract ratification. And we see it in big things like that. But everyday business in the temple, that's what they did. Hmm. You and I wanted to make a covenant. We'd seal it. We'd notarize it with a burnt offering. We'd get paperwork. It'd be right there in the temple and they'd cover it. That's the atonement part. Atonement means covering. It's not sin covering. They've got your contract covered. Hmm. It's a different type of atonement than the sin and trespass offering. It's, you know, like the... The, the house in the card game, we got the house has you covered. Yeah. That, that's kind of what it is. It's a covering. Interesting. So that's the burnt offering. I know I went really fast. No, so sorry about but that. But that's like uh, when we have a uh, contract, we get it notarized, like you mentioned uh, earlier. Yes. It's, a, it's because there's your witness, notary, public, or a, uh, pardon me, a, 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 um, a permanent seal on the paper that cannot be taken off because it's literally bent into mm-hmm. the paper. Um, same thing here. Yes, it's the same thing. It's a notarization process. It's God's notarization process. Mm-hmm. If you broke your contract, it imprecated you to be cut to pieces like that offering was. Mm. They treated it very seriously. Yeah, That's what John Gale said. I didn't finish the quote earlier. But and, if, and I'm sure if it was done that way today, there'd be less breach of contracts. Less breach of contracts. <laughs> God means business. Absolutely. He really does. Now you've got more for next week, right? What are we going to talk about next week? Next week is probably the main purpose, which is the sin and trespass offering. It's a judicial system. Ooh, okay, that's a good one. All right, so come back and see us. You come back and see us too. Come back and see Steve Siefkin when we talk about the judicial system and all that entails. It's going to be fascinating. Until then, have a great week. Shabbat shalom.